Well, again, good morning. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Trace. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to see you. You're a good-looking bunch. Good to see you. Hey, thanks. Appreciate that. It's good to be seen, as they say. So, I want to tell you a little story about a guy who made some unfortunate choices. And I'm actually going to read this report to you because I think it's fascinating um, and absolutely applies to the message today. So, Eladio, can you just show the very first picture, if you would? Okay. So this is the MV Priscilla. And it actually ran aground in the Pentland Scaries Islands off Orkney. Does anybody know where that is? I had to look it up. Yeah, it's the very, very, very northern island chain above the United Kingdom. A couple little islands up there. 4:39 in the morning, January or July 18th, 2018, ran aground. And a report found that when the officer of the watch, that is the person whose sole responsibility is to make sure that the ship is doing what it's supposed to do, he took over at 2 a.m. He turned off the track steering and switched on the vessel's autopilot. He then sat in his chair watching music videos that were being streamed on his mobile phone and may even have fallen asleep for a time, the report said. When the officer of the watch realized that around 4 a.m. the vessel was off course, he decided to steer the ship between two small islands that he could see ahead, but relied solely on radar data and did not refer to the navigational system, which would have showed that there were shallow reefs between them. When the officer of the watch realized that Priscilla was off track, there was ample time to regain the planned route. Instead, the officer of the watch chose an alternative route, which placed the vessel in imminent danger. There were no navigational alarms to warn of danger, and although the incident happened at night, no additional lookout had been posted. The bridge navigational alarm system was switched off. MV Priscilla's officer of the watch responded to two verbal warnings from shore authorities highlighting the danger ahead. The second warning told him that there were rocks ahead and to steer clear to the south. However, the action he took in response to the warning suggested he did not fully understand the situation and how to turn the vessel away from danger, the report said. Let's go to the next picture. The report said it was not clear why the officer of the watch did not try to return to the planned route when he realized the vessel was drifting off course. However, it said he might have been anxious about his perceived mistake of allowing the vessel to drift off track and might not have wanted to alert the master of the vessel, whom he also did not call. MV Priscilla was then took to a dry, dry dock in South Wales, Wales where a full inspection revealed extensive structural damage throughout the forward section of the hole. What a fun story, right? <laughs> a few things stand out to me in this story, and I, hopefully a few things stood out to you as I read that as well. But let me just, let's skip past the whole part about the guy watching music videos for two hours on his phone while he was just kind of literally asleep at the wheel. But during the minutes that followed his realization that this thing is going south. He made a, a few vital errors. I just want to highlight from what I just read some of the half dozen 
safety regulations, protocols, and things that were in place that he either ignored or just didn't do altogether. He, he did not refer to the navigational information. Okay, that's a bold move. There were no navigational alarms because they were switched off. He didn't put anybody out posted as a lookout going through this small area of islands. The bridge navigational watch alarm system was off. He, he, he turned it off. Why would you do that? I don't understand. Then there was two warnings from people who were telling him, hey, dude, that's not good. Don't go that way. He ignored them. Or the report said it seemed like maybe he didn't really know how to do what he was supposed to be doing, like his job. And... He was in trouble. Probably the one dude that could definitely help him out, the master of the ship, he didn't alert him. There's all these protocols and things in place that he just completely ignored. Doesn't do things to get the ship back on course. I mean, the goal is always to stay on course, right? That's, that's the goal. In life, that's our goal, to stay on course, isn't it? Okay. As believers, our desire is to stay on course specifically in following after Jesus. Would you agree with that? Okay. Problem is, there are a lot of things, a lot of things in this life and in this world trying to capture our attention to pull us off course. Right? As soon as you leave this building, a lot of things are going to be competing for your attention to pull you away from the course that God has put you. However, there's a lot of tools right here for us to keep us on course. And if we do not follow the example of this watch officer and actually do the things and use the tools that God has given us, we might be able to actually stay on the course. We must use the tools that God has given us, not just to stay on course, but then to pass a vibrant, well-lit torch to those coming behind us. After all, that's what this whole series has been about. This walk through 1 Timothy, which we're closing today. Put up the, the title slide, if you would, Eladio. It's, it's passing the torch. What, what role do you have? What responsibilities do you have? What does it look like? What kind of torch? What condition is the torch? More specifically, what is the message that you are passing on through your example, through your commitment, through your investment in the kingdom of God? So the message today, quite simply, stay the course. Stay the course. We're going to look at all of 1 Timothy chapter 6, but I'm going to pray, um, and then we'll dive into the text. So would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. God, thank you that it is used in our lives to help us to stay on track, to fight the good fight of faith, Lord. You've given us all that we need in your word and through your Holy Spirit, through your people who continue to spur us on toward love and good deeds. And God, we just we thank you for the way in which you, you, you essentially set us up for success, Lord God, in walking this challenging path, Lord God. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy. <laughs> Doesn't mean we're not going to stray from time to time. Doesn't mean, Lord, that we're, we might even not get completely off the track. But Lord, your grace is sufficient. And you bring so many things to bear in our lives to help us stay the course. And God, we want to look at your, your word this morning. And we pray, Lord, that it would be helpful 
and applying in our lives in ways that help us to do just that. Stay the course in following after you and passing the torch to those that are coming behind us, Lord. That's our desire. We ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have any questions this morning about what I say or maybe something I don't say, text the number to that, text your questions to that number, rather, and Mike and I will come up here at the end and we will will try to field some of those questions for you. So let's look at the first couple of verses of 1 Timothy chapter 6, so you can turn your Bible there or you can get your Bible app out or you can look on the screen. Here's the first two and a half verses. That all those who are under a yoke as bondservants regarding their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good services, service are believers and beloved. Okay, so if you were here last week, you, you might see how these verses could actually tie into last week's message. The idea that no matter who you are, no matter where you are, must act right and do right. And so here we have the idea of being a bondservant or, or a slave in some sense. Doesn't matter. Paul says, act right and do right. Sometimes, my friends, we don't like where we are in life. Correct? We don't enjoy our lot, our position. And that can be very understanding. It's difficult. This life is not easy. There's tons of challenges there before us. But let me ask you this. Anywhere in this, right here, anywhere in this Bible... Does it tell us that if we've been done wrong, or if we're in a challenging situation, that we can act however we like? Does it, does it give us permission to do that? Say, so, hey, if somebody did you wrong, you can do whatever you want back. You don't like where you are in life? That's okay. You can just have a bad attitude. It's all good. Don't even worry about it. It does not, in case you didn't know. It doesn't say that. <laughs> but here's what it does say. Here's what it does say. This is 2 Corinthians 12. 9 and 10. He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I, this is Paul speaking, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In other words, God is working in our weakness and in spite of the difficulties we face in this life, enabling us to act right and to do right, no matter who we are, no matter where we are. That's the beauty of the promise of God. And we got to take it seriously. that He does, in fact, allow us, in our weakness, to rely on him in ways that not only glorify him, but help us to put one foot in front of the other. Because he's a, really, he's a bottomless well that we draw our strength, our hope, our encouragement, our commitment. He never runs dry of those things that we need to persevere and push through. And it's for his glory. That's what he says, for the sake of Christ, for his glory. That's the point we made last week, that what we do and why we do it matters. 
Because people are watching us. Remember we talked about that last week if you were here? People are watching us, whether we want them to or not. If we identify ourselves as believers, people are taking note. And it matters because the reputation of the church and the reputation of Christ is at stake. And it's seen through you and I. So for his sake, we must seek to stay on course. Stay the course. And trust in his promises that he's going to be with there every step of the way. So Paul, as he's closing the letter, he's going to offer a few more words of wisdom, which I'm grateful for. And he's going to draw our eyes to some things that could potentially draw us off track. And then he's going to highlight some things that would help us to stay on track. Because we can't afford to get off course, can we? Can you afford to just take a few days off? Just be like, find yourself. It's funny, during the men's retreat a few weeks ago, or a month ago, or however long ago, um, Gabe was talking. He talked about um, pursuing godliness. And the idea of just the day in, day out, consistency and faithfulness in that. And he gave a really good parallel. He goes, would any of you who have a job that they like just not show up for three weeks? Like not, I'm taking vacation or somebody's sick. You just don't show up for three weeks. Is, is anybody in their right mind going to do that? Of course not. And the point he was making is, why would you do that in your pursuit of godliness? You just take three weeks off like you can afford to go off course? And it's just like, oh. Because we all have seasons like that. It's not a condemnation thing. I understand it. We all do. But we can't afford it. We can't. And as we stay on course by God's grace, we can pass the torch to those coming behind us. Because they might have a godly example set before them. And what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus in this life and in this world. So let's see what Paul has to say about these things that are going to distract us and maybe even like push us, drive us off course. So I'm going to pick up in the second half of verse 2. We're going to look at 1 Timothy 6, starting in the second half of verse 2. He says, teach and urge these things, and everything that he's been saying so far. If anyone teaches a different doctrine or does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and the constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is, go back, great gain. <laughs> for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Okay, so there's a lot going on in these couple of verses here. <laughs> First up is this reminder, sort of a caution against false teachers. If you think back to the early parts of the letter, you remember Paul spent like all chapter talking about false teachers. There was a problem in the town where they were, and which was where? Where are they? They're in Ephesus, right? And the, the church is having some struggles, and one of those struggles is false teachers. And he talked about some of the things they were um, kind of peddling in terms of their false doctrines. But now he's describing 
what the results of those false teachings would look like. And Paul's very clear. Teach you, let me teach others what I taught you. That's it. Like what you heard from me, teach that to others. Don't add anything, don't take anything away. Just do this. Or else, when the false teachers do show up, they're on the scene, they're doing their things, it's basically what I would classify as a dumpster fire. Did you read the, the description of the things that were happening? Right, An unhealthy craving for controversy, quarrels about words, envy, dissension, slander, evil, suspicions, constant friction with people around them. That sounds awful, doesn't it? It sounds terrible. Granted, it's not always so obvious. Some false teachers are pretty crafty in their messaging, their cunning. They even blend even, blend in in some cases. So we look for motive. Look at the end of verse 5. The end of verse 5. If you put that up. Imagining that godliness is a, a means of gain. False teachers that think that godliness or, or proclaiming faith, being a Christian, is a means by which to prosper. Now, does that sound familiar to some of the false teachers out there today? Perhaps. Maybe I'm not naming any names or saying anything, but just think about that idea of being a godly person as a means of gaining. Yikes. Okay, so what do we do? Steer clear of that mess. Just like, don't even go near it. He says, instead, aim for contentment. Let me ask you this question. How many of you right now would say that you're content in life? Raise your hand. This is a serious question. Okay. I'm going to offer a quick definition, and we'll see maybe if you still have the same answer after I give that quick definition. I wasn't baiting you into anything. I just really wanted to know if you thought you were content. Here's what the word means. An inner sufficiency that keeps us at peace in spite of outward circumstances. An inner sufficiency that keeps us at peace despite outward circumstances. So within our hearts and minds, we have a satisfaction, a fulfillment, a peace, regardless of what's going on around us. And there's like a sense of confidence within us. Not in how much money we have, not in our job, not in our status, not in our family. There's a confidence in Christ and who we are in him. It's an inner sufficiency that keeps us at peace. That's contentment. And he says in godliness with contentment, there's great gain. Paul speaks in other places about learning how to be content. There's a real famous passage that we'll look at right now. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. It says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, or have, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. How many of you have heard that verse before? Right. We kind of latch on to the last verse and go, I can do whatever I want because Christ strengthens me. Right. You see it's a coffee cups and t-shirts and, and that's fine. But we have to take that into context. 
through every trial and every celebration, having much, having little, one thing remains the same. His source of sufficiency and peace. It's not in the things around us. It's not in the things of this world. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. As my boy Warren says, that's Warren Wearsby. <clears throat> He's not really my boy. I wish he was, but <clears throat> this is what he says about it. He says, all of nature depends on hidden resources. The great trees send their roots down into the earth to draw up water and minerals. Rivers have their sources in snow-capped mountains. The most important part of a tree is the part you cannot see, the root system. The most important part of the Christian's life is the part that only God sees. Unless we draw deep, draw on the deep resources of God by faith, we fail against the pressures of life. Paul depended on the power of Christ at work in his life. This is how we learn to become content. And learn is an important word there because it's not automatic. Oh, I'm a believer now. I can be content no matter what happens. This is something that we learn how to do. So don't, don't be beating yourself up and go, man, I, I'm not content. Like, I want more, whatever it is. But part of the way that we learn to be content is by learning how things other than Christ will not satisfy us. Because we've all tried our hand at it, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or name things, but just put in your mind right now something that you have tried to find fulfillment and satisfaction in other than Christ that failed you. Everybody's got something in their mind. Right? So one of the ways that we learn to be content is by examining those things that fail us again and again. And that's what we see in verses 7 through 10. He talks about the idea of wealth. And wealth does not bring contentment. The world would try to persuade us, right? If you just got enough money in the bank, man, it buys happiness. You get everything you need. You can be content, right? That's what the world wants us to think. In fact, this is one of those things that I mentioned earlier that can actually pull us off course. It's a pursuit of wealth. The love of money is a very dangerous thing. And he says it's drawn people away from it. Not only that, it's pulled them away from the faith altogether. That's a scary thing. So in the pursuit of wealth, I think here's what he's saying, is that we can be tempted to make bad decisions. How many of you have made a bad decision? Again, don't raise your hand. But how many of you made a bad decision in the pursuit of wealth that you were trying to gain maybe through some not-so-ideal ways? Okay, always man. It brings with it destruction, ruin, it's harmful, it's unhealthy, and its root, at its root, is all kinds of evil, the love of money. There's a reason why Jesus talked about money often. It can draw us off course if we're not careful. Now, if you just heard me say that money is bad, you were not listening. Because some people will say that, like, oh, you don't like money. I love money. Money's great. I need money. You need money. Right? It inherently is not a bad thing. But your wrongful pursuit of wealth can be. And it cannot. Money cannot bring contentment. It will not be the sufficiency within you that brings peace 
Because what happens when it all goes away? That's when you see these huge rich people or CEOs, they take their lives because everything that their sufficiency, identity, is gone. When the money runs out, it's over for them. Money will not bring the kind of contentment that Paul's talking about here. Okay, so that's those verses. Let's look at the remainder of the chapter, verses 6 through 11 through 21. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who is the testimony before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. So there's a big section in there about money again, which I'm not going to talk about. There's good information there about planning for the future, about being generous, about all these things that having wealth can be good to expand the kingdom of God. So I'm not purposely skipping over that. There's other things there I want to highlight. Because these are some of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. This is what drives me to stay the course. The charge there in verses 11 through 14 are powerful. This is where now Paul starts to give us a list of things to do. It's been avoid this, avoid that, don't partake in this, don't do that. Do this. You want to stay on track? Do this. Number one, he says, hey, Avoid everything that I just told you that is harmful. Just stay away from it. Separate yourself. That's the language there. It's not just avoid it like hide. It's separate yourself from it. Get away from it. Instead, he says, pursue these six things. Six things. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. You see that there? Righteousness my friends, is a gift from God that you cannot manufacture. You can't, you can't create righteousness. But it is cultivated and it's pursued after. It's something that God gives to his people and it's the key to right living. God's people are righteous when they're in right relation with him and when they enjoy his salvation. Godliness, this is a more practical devotion. It's the second thing that he lists, and it has to do with our conduct, how we live out our faith in real and meaningful ways. What does it look like when you are out there day-to-day living out your faith? It has to do with character, your character matching his character and your conduct. And it only comes, my friends, by doing. 
You can only pursue godliness by pursuing godliness, by doing it, by being in the word, by being around people, by serving others, by sacrificially living. Godliness comes through doing. Faith, perhaps in this, in this sentence better translated as faithfulness, it has been well said that the greatest ability is dependability. Can others count on you when the cards are down? Can the Lord count on you to continue to pursue him and others when he calls you to be obedient and of service? Faithfulness. Love. This is not a casual friendship kind of love. This is agape love that sacrifices for the sake of others. It seeks to give, not to gain. It's the kind of love that is most compelling. And it will always cost you something. This kind of love will always cost you something. Steadfastness carries with it the idea of endurance. Sticking with it even when it gets hard. It's not a complacency that waits, but a courage that continues into the hard places. It's the day in, day out consistency in the godly things that you and I desire to grow in, that develop and cultivate godliness, faithfulness, love. We have to be steadfast in order to see this fruit bear out in our lives. And then gentleness. It's not weakness. I think you know that. But it's been described, I think, well as power under control. Gentleness is a strong hand with a soft touch. It's a tender, compassionate approach towards others' weaknesses and limitations. A gentle person still speaks the truth, sometimes even painful truth, but in doing so guards his tone so the truth can be well received. The question is not how strong are we, but how do we use our strength? I love that definition of gentleness. Now let me ask, what, which of these six stand out to you? You can answer out loud this one. Which one stands out to you? Yes. Come on, what one stands out to you? Which one is it? Righteousness. All right, all right. Think then, why? Why does it stand out to you? What about it is appealing to you? What about it maybe is drawing your attention? Is this something that God has gifted you in? Are you able to love in this way? Are you, are you steadfast by nature? Maybe celebrate those things and help others to build that thing up in their lives. But maybe you're drawn to something because it's an area where you need to see some growth and development in. Pursue that. Give yourself to that. Then Paul says to fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. Again, there's intense action and effort built into this phrase. And it is a fight, isn't it? This walk and following Jesus in a way that is pleasing to him. We've already read about the many distractions that are vying for your attention to pull you off course. Take us out of the fight, or at the very least, get us to go off course. He says, no, stand firm. Previously, he was saying to flee other things that are not good, but here, it's like, no, Plant your flag and stay the course. Fight the good fight. Rally around one another and the word of God. It's a daily commitment to live in this way. And it's easier with people by your side. 
Isn't it? Encouraging you, spurring you on. That's why we have fight clubs, discipleship groups. Because that's what we're called to do, my friends. Fight the good fight and take hold of the eternal life, he says, to which you were called. Keep the commandment unstained, Paul says, and free from reproach in verse 14. Do not allow temptations or worldly longings to taint the command of God. Stay on course and live it out, the will of God for you and for your life each and every day. So how do we do this? As we discussed last week, it's something we will each answer to the Lord for our account. We're going to give an account for everything that we do and how we do it. So how we stay the course, how we veer, how we encourage others to stay the course, how we get back on track. We'll stand before the Lord and give an account for these kinds of things. So we want to remain faithful, steadfast, loving, consistent in every way. Lastly, Timothy is told to guard the good deposit entrusted to him. This perhaps is the most powerful illustration for me personally. Something significant has been deposited into me. And if you're a follower of Jesus, something significant has been deposited into you. And that is the message of hope, the gospel of Jesus Christ has been deposited into you. It's in there. It's been entrusted to me and it's been entrusted to you and we are supposed to do something with it. Guard it and ensure it remains unstained, yes, but there's much more to the equation. And I want to end with this and it's going to require us to dip into 2 Timothy a little bit to fully express this idea of the deposit that is in you and in me. 2 Timothy 2, 2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The good deposit in us is the things that we have heard that have been taught to us. This word and the truth of the gospel is what has been taught to us and trusted to us. And we don't just hold on to it and preserve it in this dark world and hope nothing happens to it. We guard it, try to keep it unstained, but then what do we do with it? And trust it to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. This is the Great Commission. This is why we're here. To share that hope and truth that is in you with other people. That's why we need to guard it and make sure it remains unstained so that what we pass on, the torch we pass on, is the truth. That will set people free, that will change lives, that will bring restoration and hope and life. This is the task that God has invited us into. It's spiritual multiplication. It is the Great Commission. And we must stay on course. We have to fight the good fight, pursue the things of God. So that we might pass the torch, burning brightly and steady, no matter the cost. That's our journey through this letter. 
I hope it's been an encouragement to you. I know it has been to me. We, we have a, a, a tall order before us. But again, it's one that we are equipped to do through the word of God, through his spirit, and through one another. So my encouragement to all of us is to maybe just examine our lives. Maybe even go back and read 1 Timothy, the whole letter, and see what stands out in terms of the way in which we are living our lives is a picture of the gospel to the world around us. The areas where we can thank and praise God for the things that he's grown us in and matured us in. And the areas where we can fall before him and say, Lord, I need help in this area. That we might stay the course. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for, again, just your goodness to us. The way you've called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. The way you have equipped us, Lord, to be your ambassadors, your representatives, ministers of reconciliation. All these titles, Lord, that you place upon us that all have to do with being a reflection of who you are to the world around us. I remember, Lord, uh, a couple years ago now when Mark Miller was here and he was giving the illustration of the moon, <clears throat> how the moon is has no light. It offers no light in and of itself. It is simply a reflection of the sun to the world. That's what gives it light. Lord, let us be that. We have no viable light within us inherently, Lord, but we can reflect the light of Christ to the world around us. And we must. We need your help in that, Lord. We want to go hard after you. Our souls longing for you. Lord, strengthen us. Strengthen our resolve. Strengthen our love for you and for others. Lord, we love you. Thank you, Lord, that the torch was passed to us. And thank you, Lord, that we can do so for others. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you. Amen.